Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Sarah Wickstrom, Director at the Max Planck Institute for Molecular Biomedicine in Münster on this show. Please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. You began your career in Helsinki, Finland, where you studied medicine at the University of Helsinki. You then got your PhD from the same university in 2004. After a postdoc in Martinsried, where you stayed from 2005 to 2010, you moved to Cologne to start your own lab. After that, you returned to the University of Helsinki, where you headed the cell and Developmental Biology Laboratory as a professor. And in April 2022, you will move from Helsinki to Münster to start your position as a full-time director at the Max Planck Institute for Molecular Biomedicine. A question I'd like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? Right. So, I mean, I was for some reason, so I don't come from a family of scientists. My mom is actually a gym teacher and, and my, my dad was working for a company. But for some reason, as a kid, I was very interested in science, but actually not biology, but rather physics and space. I read a lot of science fiction and I got this idea that I want to be a scientist. And actually, until the end of high school, where one has to start thinking what to study, I thought I will be a physicist. But then I got cold feet. I thought maybe I'm not you know, smart enough and I didn't have any role models in that field. So then actually my mom had spotted this kind of announcement that the medical school at the University of Helsinki had started an MD-PhD program where the idea was that while studying medicine, you're already starting research. And, and I thought maybe that's actually a good kind of a safe path to science, having a career or training for a career or a real profession on the side. So I went to med school kind of with no clue, no kind of ambition to be a clinician, but rather somehow getting into science. And the first summer I went then uh, to do a rotation in a basic cell biology lab. And I was like, wow, this is super cool. And so I've done cell biology ever since. Yeah, that sounds very interesting. Um, coming to a science uh, that centers around the stem cell niche and factors that impact the dynamics and plasticity and how mechanotransduction can influence nuclear architecture, gene expression and stem cell fate. Um, let's start with stem cells and the stem cell niche. Um, what does stem cell niche actually mean? And is this a term for a place or rather a set of biological markers? Well, to me, at least it means actually a, a distinct location within a tissue where the stem cells typically are present or enriched. So at least, of course, there are exceptions where you have single stem cells, like in the muscle, but mostly stem cells are kind of concentrated within some sort of distinct anatomical location where they then are exposed to specific factors that somehow control their state. And these could be other cells that are present in the niche that, that secrete factors, but it's also sometimes even like topologies, so curvature, also the extracellular matrix, which is one of our interests, which then can confer also specific, specific kind of uh, mechanical features. So it's a so specific it location sense. with specific factors that somehow regulates stem cell function. So it would make sense to like have a little 
curvature in the bones or something like that that makes it easier to concentrate factors? Well, I, I think, of course, we are not quite there yet to really demonstrate that conclusively, but it has, for example, been shown in, in the intestine by very elegant work from uh, Cliff Tobin's lab that kind of this gradual formation of the curvature really enhances local concentrations of critical morphogens. So it's probably always kind mm -hmm. of an interplay of a multitude of factors where then some sort of shapes will play important roles. The biological system you're focusing on are hair follicle stem cells. Um, why is this a suitable model system for your work? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And why we decided to go into that was that it's a very well-characterized cell niche. So for us, it's, it's a very nice model. So uh, the intestine is one good model that has been extensively studied, the hematopoietic stem cells and, and hair follicle is a well-characterized niche. We have good markers for the stem cells, so we can kind of unequivocally identify them. We can sort them out of the tissue or study them in situ. So for us, it was an attractive model. And the second very nice and convenient thing about these stem cells is that in the mouse, the cycling, so the quiescent to activation switch, which is a very kind of important feature of certain stem cells, that is synchronized. So, so every stem cell niche in, in the mouse is in the same state for the early two cycles. So this also gives a nice kind of genetically tractable system where it's easy to identify defects in the cycling because it presents itself so kind of clearly and globally. So coming to the work you did, uh, I want to start with a paper from the year 2017 uh, that was published in the Ember Journal. Um, there you investigated hair follicle stem cell cultures and their self-organizing potential. Uh, what did you do there and what did you find? So, as I said, I, I see myself as a cell biologist, so kind of entering this field of hair follicle stem cells, of course, the first thing we noticed was that there was no in vitro system for, for studying these cells. And, and that's why I kind of also inspired of what was kind of starting to be this organoid revolution. We thought that, of course, we will try to establish first an organoid system, which, which we managed. So we believe I believe that we were the first ones to really be able to culture these hair follicle stem cells long term so we can really have them culture for months in the absence of any feeder cells or other heterologous cell types and, and they seem not to be able to lose their potency so we can even transplant the cells after we have frozen them down into mice and they will make hair. But then studying these cultures we noticed this very intriguing feature where the system will kind of self-organize into this 50-50 equilibrium of stem cells and their progenitors. And this equilibrium was kind of surprisingly stable. So every time we passage the cells or if we freeze them down and take them back into culture, they will always invariantly somehow go into the 50-50. And for us, this was a very in interesting equilibrium state. Of course, it's kind of artificial in a way that it doesn't represent kind of a biological equilibrium, but it really suggested that, that there is some sort of homeostatic properties of, of the system where, where it's self-adjusting. And, and it was interesting for us to also note that it was following these kind of mathematical rules that we can predict by simulations, but also then it obeys rules that we know from genetic studies in vivo. So we can tweak this equilibrium by introducing, for example, morphogens that have been shown to be critical for, for the state switching of the stem cells to differentiated cell types. So for us, it presented really like a 
super cool model to try to study fate decisions and how they are then impacted by various extrinsic factors such as the niche. So does this reflect the state in vivo? Um, you just touched it a little bit, but is this then the, re the situation as it is in, in the animal? So to some extent, we we believe so. So we've meanwhile done, for example, single cell sequencing of these organoids, and we know that we we really have captured the what we think is the bona fide stem cell state and then the early differentiated state. And actually, what, what is becoming clear, not through our own work only, but work from other people in the field, that in multiple epithelial stem cell niches, you actually have this kind of bidirectional plasticity where differentiated cells when exposed to niche factors can actually re-enter the stem cell state. As I mentioned, this 50-50 equilibrium is a property of the cultures and that's not how it is in, in vivo, but we know that, that there is this kind of bidirectionality and that's why we think that our, our culture model is a great tool now to start discovering what are really kind of deter de the determinants of the niche that allow the differentiated cell to go back and also to kind of identify perhaps the point of no return. So how far in the differentiation trajectory you have to be that you have lost this plasticity. And this might be really important for regenerative med medicine, trying to kind of boost the properties of, of, of stemness in the tissue to improve, for example, tissue repair. Yeah, you followed up on this by looking at exactly one of those factors, right? I mean, you looked at the glutamine metabolism and how this controls exactly the exit and the re-entry of stem cells to their niche. Um, what did you find there then? So we, we indeed found, which was also known for other stem cells, that, that the metabolic state of the stem cells and also kind of the metabolic environment of the niche is really important for determining the stem cell state. So this has been meanwhile shown for many stem cells and, and shown also to be relevant in cancer. So for the stem cells to differentiate, they need to switch their metabolic state. And this is typically related to, and also in the hair follicle related to the fact that when, when a cell is quiescent, it doesn't need to synthesize certain building blocks that they, and they are absolutely required for, for the proliferation and differentiation. So in our case, The stem cell is, is more in a lycolytic state and exists in what we think is, is a hypoxic niche. But then upon differentiation, it needs to engage glutamine metabolism to really maximize the output and to be able to synthesize a changed proteome and, and really actively proliferate then to produce the entire hair follicle. So it would be a change from a more... I mean, it, it's called quiescence, yeah, but <laughs> from a more inactive uh, metabolic state to uh, then active because it needs to proliferate and make more of itself. Exactly. And then kind of what was also the key and, and interesting finding in the study is that this switching back to switch back to the stem cell state, the cells absolutely also need to switch, switch off this uh, metabolic pathway. So it's really related to kind of this plasticity, also the ability to switch between the two metabolic states. Yeah. So as mentioned earlier, another area of interest for you and your lab is mechanotransduction <laughs> and how it can influence how genes are expressed and how chromatin is organized. And this is more the scope of like the epigenetics podcast. <laughs> so how are mechanical forces sensed on the outer nuclear membrane and how does this then lead to changes in, for example, heterochromatin and gene expression? Yeah, so we kind of, so my interest coming from, from the extracellular matrix and integrins, which were the topics of my postdoc 
obviously I was interested in in the mechanical signals to to begin with. But uh, this whole thing about mechanics influencing chromatin and and the epigenetic state of genes, this was kind of a serendipitous finding that that we made some years ago when we just tried to understand what kind of pathways are actually activated in epidermal stem cells when we expose them to stretching. So we thought that we were transposing... Yeah. Sorry. So you looked at GoTerms, or how did you find it? Then? Exactly. So we, so first of all, we we noticed that we seem to have some sort of global transcriptional repression, which was unexpected and, and a completely new finding. And then looking at GeoTerms, we found that the polycomb repressive complex two pathway and H3K27 trimethylation marked genes were heavily enriched. And and then I thought that wow, this is something really unexpected. I was a bit thinking whether we should go into that because we had not really worked on chromatin before, but then when I thought that, okay, this is too cool not to follow up. You then looked at the process from the other way around and started at the position of heterochromatin. Um, how does a cell react to mechanical stress that acts on it, uh, the nuclei and chromatin? Yeah, so what, what we now have learned from, from a large number of studies uh, from my lab and also others is that actually the, the nucleus seemed to be kind of a mechanosensor on its own, and it's sensing its its volume but also deformation so so this is basically probably how most of mechanosensation works that that different organelles and different protein complexes in the cells are actually sensitive to how they are deformed and and the nucleus is also sensitive to deformation and and the nuclear deformation that can occur when the cell is being compressed or when it's actively itself changing shape that is then initiating certain signals that will then also be transmitted into the nucleus and these will change the epigenetic state of, of chromatin and thereby influence gene activity. But also what we, we notice later is that, that the chromatin itself is also important actually to regulate the deformability of the nucleus and thereby heterochromatin is stiffer than euchromatin. And, and kind of especially the, the lamina-anchored H3K9 trimethyl type of heterochromatin really makes the nucleus stiffer. And, and thereby, it adjusts actually the nuclear deformability. So there's this kind of feedback loop where mechanical signals are transmitted to the nucleus, but then by changes in chromatin state, the nucleus kind of changes its own mechanical properties and thereby kind of adjusts this, the deformability. So this was something very new and had been shown for adhesive structures, for example, or the cytoplasmic cytoskeleton. And now we were kind of the, the first to show that actually the nucleus will also kind of dynamically adjust its mechanical state in response to mechanical signals. And how is this all measured? So we use multiple methods. I, I think that's always the challenge and it's just still something that is kind of work more work is required in the field to improve the methods because many methods that we use are still indirect so we are kind of using imaging type of tools to infer certain mechanical properties by for example quantifying mobility and and, and so on but what we also do very often is that we use a specific microscope which is called the atomic force microscope and there basically we have a cantilever where we know let's say, the mechanical properties of the cantilever, and we can use that to indent certain structures such as the nucleus and, and basic, basically then measuring the 
bending of the cantilever under a specific force using a piezo-coupled laser, we can then infer the stiffness of, of <laughs> certain organs. Yeah, but what I meant is, how does the cell measure that? Ah, how does the cell measure? So there again, the, the deformation is, is, is kind of what, what is being sensed. So if you are stiff, you require more force to be deformed. Mm -hmm. So, so that, is, that is basically how mechanosensation, one, one of the principles. Although again, we need more work to really understand on the molecular level how, how this sensing is, is happening. But what seems to be, for example, the case is that certain proteins are mechanosensitive because their structures are mechanosensitive. So you can have, for example, force-dependent unfolding of certain key mechanosensory proteins, and this will expose cryptic epitopes that then can be, for example, phosphorylated or confer new protein-protein interactions. So that's how it's thought. But again, whether this is the only mechanism, it's not clear. We have mechanosensitive ion channels that can be stretched open, such as piezo that just got a Nobel Prize and, and, and so on. So there's multiple pathways, but I think the deformation is kind of key, whether the deformation occurs on the level of membrane or single proteins or protein complexes. So in just last year, you investigated a process called niche stiffening and its effect on hair follicle stem cell aging. So what is that, what you call niche stiffening? Right. So one important mechanical component of tissues is, is the extracellular matrix. So, so for example, in the skin, which is the tissues, we study the collagen fibers and, and the elastic fibers are really kind of what, what makes the tissue actually be able to resist deformation that is, is constantly happening when we are moving around, for example. And uh, what, is, what has been known already is that the ECM kind of gets heavily remodeled when we age. It happens through several mechanisms. Even chronological aging kind of alters how these proteins are being cross-linked, for example, but also other things such as UV radiation will modify the properties. And, and, and this will change also the mechanics, and thereby it will change all these mechanotransduction pathways that we were dis just discussing. So changes in, in the stiffness of the niche will impact how the cells are sensing mechanical signals and, and what will be then relayed into the nucleus. So this also includes like skin and everything that is like exposed to the outside, right? Yes, but this, I mean, obviously most, most tissues uh, contain L, the extracellular matrix in, in some form or another. And, and for example, Kevin Shalut's group have shown that even in the brain, at, at least in the mouse, very similar things happen where actually the, the niche of, of the neuronal stem cells gets stiffer when the mice age and, and this will alter the stem cell behavior. So it's probably one, one key aspect of, of aging. And, and what is surprising, for example, that the proteins that we found in the skin to be changed and be important for the stiffness modulation, other groups have found in other tissues. So it, it might even be that there's this kind of very common signature of how actually the niche ages And, and it will be interesting to see whether the stiffening plays a role in, in many other tissues as well. How is this then connected, like the stiffening and the stem cells themselves? Um, how do they sense that? And yeah, how is this then uh, contributing to the aging of the stem cells then? Right. So the cells are constantly 
so most cells are adherent. So, so are the skin stem cells, and they will attach to the extracellular matrix. And, and by using their contractile cytoskeleton, they are constantly kind of measuring. So there's this kind of force and counterforce where the cells are constantly kind of con- contracting and thereby measuring the, the stiffness of, of the ECM. And this will then be relayed as signals to this deformation that we discussed into the nucleus. And, and, and when the niche changes its properties, become stiffer, these signals will change. And what we noticed was that these, these hair follicle stem cells, they showed signatures that they would be constantly under mechanical stress. And, and thereby, they, they showed this kind of stress signaling, which was very similar, actually, what we saw in this very kind of artificial primitive stretching studies. So we saw transcriptional repression, which hindered the ability of the stem cells actually to become activated and to regenerate the hair follicle. But then if we took the stem cells out and we transplanted them into young mice, we could kind of restore their function. So that's how we figured out that it's not the intrinsic aging of the stem cells, but rather really the aging of the niche that is is contributing. Of course, we don't think that the stiffening is is the only thing, but but we think that that is critical. And this is because then we again use the organoids that we discussed earlier, because there we can also change then the stiffness of, of the hydrogel that, that we culture the organoids in. And when we change the stiffness, we saw similar things. So transcriptional repression and, and decreased activation of, of the early differentiation genes. So we think that the stiffening is one of the key factors mm-hmm. that then kind of compromises the function of the stem cells in, in the aged animal. So you can say if you stay young from the outside, you will stay on the inside? Well, I mean, that's, uh, that's, of course, maybe stretching it a little bit too far. But yeah, what, what, what is clear is that, that probably like things like stem cell transplantations, they will not work if, if the niche is already damaged. And this, of course, we already a little bit knew from other work that if you have fibrosis and so on, and you try to put stem cells there, the niche will make the stem cells work less well than they would in, in a healthy environment. Um, did you... Uh find some epigenetics factors that are involved, like transcription factors or which chromatin marks may be involved? So, so we think that the transcriptional repression is, is one of the earliest changes, and this will then later impact uh, gene silencing. So, so we know that the polycomb and the H3K27 trimethyl pathway is involved, but what we think that that, and, and based on our in vitro studies, that kind of comes after the transcriptional repression. And, and how the, why does mechanical stress trigger transcriptional repression? This is something that we are working very hard to understand. But we think that it's quite similar to other stress responses, such as the heat shock. So, so we are kind of trying to now use what is known in, in, in these other fields of stress to understand what's, what's going on in, in, in terms of mechanical stress. Now, this already leads me to my next question. What are you working on right now? And what are your plans, uh, let's say, for the next five years? So we are very interested in figuring out really the earliest changes. So what are the earliest responses of nuclear deformation and, and, and the transcriptional machinery? And whether this is something that happens in all cells, so whether it's like a generic pathway or whether they could also be cell type specificity in, in how the cells respond. And, and the second interesting question is that whether these mechanoresponses are somehow rewired in disease. 
So we are very interested in whether cancer cells, for example, respond similarly than healthy cells or whether they somehow have figured out ways to, for example, bypass these kind of mechanotransduction pathways because we know that cancer cells become more independent of their environment. So I mentioned that stem cells are very dependent on the niche, but somehow cancer cells become independent. And, and one question is that whether it's because they can somehow bypass or rewire these, these pathways. And then we are very interested in this nuclear mechanosensation also kind of as, as a mechanism to regulate tissue morphogenesis and maintenance more broadly. So right now you are in the in the middle of uh, moving to Münster and taking on, you know, your new position as director of the MPI. And thank you so much for taking the time during this uh, relocation to, to be on the show. And uh, maybe you can also um, answer the question of what your plans are for the next five years in respect to, you know, new position as director of the MPI. Yes, I'm obviously super excited about the move and uh, looking forward to integrate with, with the Münster Community. So, of course, in the Institute, there's a lot of exciting work going on in, in terms of the vascular development. And, and there, of course, there's a lot of mechanical signals that are transmitted through the junctions. So, so we are very excited about kind of doing comparative research, looking at kind of how responses in the skin are similar or different to, to other tissues, such as the vasculature. And, and in Münster, of course, there's also a great broader cell biology community that studies a lot of different aspects of mechanosensing and, and, and actin regulation. So where I see kind of the department going is, is, is really in, into fundamental mechanobiology, but of course with the focus of nuclear mechanosensation and especially trying to understand how the transcriptional machinery and how chromatin responds to mechanical signals and what is the relevance in health and disease. So to finish off this interview, I have two more rather general questions. And the first one, uh, did you at one point of your career face the situation that you have reached a dead end or did not know how to proceed to, uh, to answer the question you wanted to answer? Well, I mean, with individual projects yes so in some cases especially kind of more in the in the beginning of uh, my group leader career there were a couple of projects which were kind of too ambitious in a way that they were relying on methods that needed to be established and in 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 some cases we we failed to develop them and 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 i think that's one important thing is to be able to kind of pivot And, and kind of decide relatively earlier that, okay, this thing is not working, let's move on. So a couple of projects have been terminated because the key technology that was kind of meant to open all the doors did not, did not work. Later on, I've kind of gotten more experience to design projects so that they are not dependent on one single technology. And then it's rather trying to find alternative ways to look at things and, and that's how we at least for now seem to always kind of find a path forward maybe using some other approaches or asking the question a little bit in a different way so it's all about project planning to not run into a dead end <laughs> i think one has to be strategical in a way to avoid these kind of bottlenecks and also then to be flexible and not fall too much in love with one particular hypothesis i think it's important to be able to be 
say that, okay, this was a great idea and it would have been beautiful if it would have been this way, but let's abandon this and, and, and go into another direction. So in the last uh, 30 minutes, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Can you maybe give a short summary about your most important findings or something that we might have missed in this interview? Well, I think really the kind of where I see the the big picture important finding is, is, is really this understanding that mechanical signals are really central for, for stem cell behavior. And, and at least they can operate on a very kind of broad scale. So how I see mechanics working is, is really like a thresholding factor that will determine the cell's response to many specific biochemical factors. So I see mechanics working together always with morphogens or growth factors and other signals, but it, it's, it's a factor that kind of determines the response to, to a given, and, and given morphogen, for example. And, and also this whole concept of, of chromatin state being mechanosensitive, I, I, I think that is, that is something that is, is one of the key findings that coming out of my lab. So thank you, Sarah, for your time and for being on the show. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.